Welcome to the Forge Leadership Podcast. In this series, Simon Barrington and Johnny Abbott are joined each week by emerging leaders from the millennial generation. Today, our guest is David Barclay. David takes inspiration from his ancestors who were bankers, brewers and business owners, but also at the same time philanthropists, abolitionists, campaigners and people of faith. He has particular interest in the politics of the common good and the possibilities for business to have greater social impact. Well, hello, everybody. Welcome again to the Forge Leadership uh, Podcast, looking to give millennials a voice uh, in the whole sphere of leadership. I'm here again with Simon Barrington. Uh, My name's Johnny Abbott, and today we're with David Barclay. Hey, David. Hi. How are you doing? Yeah, I'm well, thank you. Yeah, good to be here. You're calling from Bristol, is that right? That's right, yeah. That's great. David, why don't you kick us off by telling us a little bit about yourself? Sure. So my name is David Barclay and I work for an organization called the Good Faith Partnership, um, which is a social consultancy that helps different sectors, faith, politics and charity um, work better together on common issues. And so at the moment, I'm spending most of my week working for the mayor of Bristol as an advisor on issues around migration and integration. But we also work on a range of other projects. Wow, that's fascinating. So um, David, how do you get to work with an organization like Good Faith? What's your journey into uh, leadership being? Yeah, slightly, um, probably slightly unusual one, certainly not one that is um, laid out by any careers advisors uh, in school. (laughs) I I studied history at university um, in Oxford and um, have always been fascinated by and interested in um, kind of how big change happens and kind of public life and politics probably in, in, in specifically. Um, I found myself involved in kind of student representation whilst at university, first at my college, mm-hmm. and then I ended up running um, and became president of the student union, which is, was my first mm-hmm. job. Um, right. That was the year after. Was that, was that a paid role? It was a paid role, yes. So I did that for the year after I graduated. I mean, it wasn't well paid, but it was. It was. <laughs> um, and uh, that was the year that £9,000 fees were coming in. So it was a fascinating right. to be involved in higher education. Um, you know, the, it was not just £9,000 fees, which was key, but you know, what that represented was the kind of marketization of higher education. That was the government's explicit mm agenda was to create a market mm. and to kind of ch- change i think fairly fundamentally the nature of what higher education um mm. is um so that was that was fascinating and then i got married and went to china for a year and taught in a university um mm-hmm. and then came back to to the uk to london and worked as a community organizer for several years with a charity mm. called the center for theology and community so working particularly mm-hmm. with churches, but with other civil society organizations as well on issues around money and debt. And I also set up a leadership program called the Buxton Leadership Program um, mm-hmm. and got to do some research with the think tank Theos. So a fascinating combination of things. And then through all of that stuff, I met a guy called Russell Rook, who had started the Good Faith Partnership um, and ended up kind of joining forces with him in 2016. Fantastic. Now, wow. talk, talk me through what a, a typical day for you might look like in advising the mayor of Bristol on, on, on migration issues. What do you get involved in and how does this intersection of politics and cultural change and transformation and faith uh, come together in a really practical way? Yeah, well, there's a, there's a huge variety um, in this role uh, working for the mayor um, because we work um, our, our aim is to try and make the inclusion of migrants a key hallmark of the mayor's administration. 
Um, and so we work across the different t- elements of his role as mayor um, in terms of him as leader within the city council and trying to help the different bits of the council to be more strategic and joined up on issues around migration, um, particularly thinking about more vulnerable migrants, asylum seekers, refugees, um, as we go through Brexit, you know, how are EU nationals in, in, in Bristol um, going to be supported and um um, and, but then we also think about how he, the mayor's role as convener in the city and how do we help uh, be a connector between the strategic conversations in the city and the people who are really on the front line working with um, migrants and refugees in particular. And then finally, in terms of the mayor's role as a spokesperson for the city into the national and international um, arenas. So, um, for example, the mayor has just been in Marrakesh over the weekend um, attending some events related to the Global Compact on Migration, um, which is a kind of fairly historic international agreement um, that has just been um, uh, adopted. And, and, and he has been very heavily involved in speaking up for a greater role for cities in um, international uh, decisions and discussions on, on migration. So we get to support him um, in that, in terms of setting up meetings and writing speeches and all of that kind of stuff. And how does your faith influence the way that you're interacting with the mayor, but also with with faith based communities in in Bristol in in their role in responding to the migrant crisis? Yeah, well? it's an interesting one. So the mayor himself is a Christian and is very open about how his faith motivates um, him and shapes him in his in his work. Um, so that's fascinating to get to to work for uh, you know someone who is quite quite open about their Christian motivation as a, as a political leader. Um, but also what's very noticeable about Bristol is that the, the, the high levels of engagement between churches and, um, and Christians in the city with the kind of the, the life of the city in all its different elements. Um, so the churches, yeah. as they are in, many, in most places in the UK, you know, very active on lots of social issues, things like food banks and homeless provision, winter night shelters are run by churches in Bristol. Um, and, but then also in some of the other kind of strategic initiatives going on in the city, um, whether that is something called the, the City Funds, which is a new initiative that's bringing together different types of financial resources to tackle big issues in the city. And that's, that's um, being headed up by, by a Christian. There's, a, there's something called the Bristol Housing Festival, which is all about tackling um, Bristol's massive housing crisis and challenge through innovative means. And that, again, is being led by a by a Christian, so there's 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 a kind of there's a slightly running joke in the mayor's office about the Christian mafia, um, <laughs> uh, and, and, and that's shared by you know Christians and and but particularly the non-Christians in his office, um, kind of lovingly mm. refer to the Christian mafia because they see mm. people popping up time and time again involved in the life of the mm. city who are motivated by their mm. by their Christian faith, and um, it's uh, it's a great pleasure and a privilege really to get to um to be a little part of that um and to try and kind of connect up some of those different people and there seems to be a resurgence doesn't there of of christians and millennials particularly wanting to engage in public life and and and, and, and be a voice um within the wider uh community but of course that's not new is it and you refer yourself to uh, your ancestors and and, and and their engagement in public life how how, how, how does your family how's your family history shaped 
you as historical mentors, yeah. if you like, um, for, for the work and role. Well, I feel it as a great um, blessing and a privilege, really, that, um, that I have such an interesting family history. As my surname suggests, Barclay, the, the, some of them were bankers. Um, that's a slightly more yeah. torrid uh, ethical tale, of course, of how that institution has <laughs> changed through the years. But they, they were Quakers. So when it started, Barclays Bank was quite a, um, a model ethical institution. It had, it had as little as possible to do with the slave trade, for example, which was quite tricky as a bank. Um, but, um, yeah, some of the other ancestors who weren't involved in, in banking were heavily involved in lots of other forms of kind of public life. And in particular, there was a guy called Thomas Fowle Buxton, who is my great, 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 great grandfather. And he was an MP and a great friend of William Wilberforce. And he kind of took on from Wilberforce the, the leadership of the abolition movement in Parliament. So he was a kind of active member of, of, of course, what we know as the Clapham sect. Um, and uh, a really incredible, uh, incredible man. Um, and, um, and I take huge inspiration from, from him in lots of different ways, both in terms of his commitment um, you know, he spent over two decades working on to try and see change on that issue. Um, and um, also the way in which he combined that incredible effectiveness in public life with an amazing um, kind of family life that the kind of spiritual legacy um, of that, I think, is also passed down through the generations, um, which, is, which is really encouraging. And of course, I think lots of people today are really inspired by the stories of people like Wilberforce, but I think almost more importantly than the individuals is is the way in which the Clapham sect combined, uh, enabled people from who had different passions and different skills in different spheres of life, whether it was politics or business or the arts, um, or people who you know made money and funded things, um, to really feel like they were part of a team, a part of a wider um, mission. Um, and, you know, the effectiveness of that was extraordinary in their generation. And I think we're hopefully seeing a kind of similar spirit today where people recognize that we have to get out of our silos if we're going to tackle any of the big challenges that we're facing as a society and as a, as a world. Um, we, you know, we, the answers are not going to come solely from politics or from business or from charity or from the church. It has to be some creative combinations of those different elements. Um, and that's, you know, that's why I'm so excited to be part of the Good Faith Partnership, because that's our whole mission is to um, help people collaborate more effectively. That's fantastic. And what, what barriers do you seem that need to be broken down between politics, church, faith, uh, community groups, etc., um, to enable that greater sense of working together? Because mm-hmm. there can be quite a bit of suspicion, can't there, between charities and churches yeah. and churches and and, 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 and politics, etc. So, yeah, what, what do you see as the challenges? Yeah, in that space? Lot, lots of interesting challenges. Sometimes it's challenges of language that we talk slightly different languages in these different spheres um, and sectors, and then so that when, when you try and bring them together, um, they sometimes sometimes kind of don't. You know, can, people can talk past each other, um, and so I think having a you know part of the work that we do at the Good Faith Partnership feels sometimes like the work of translation. Um, that because we're able to speak okay. language of faith and, and, yeah. and charity, but also then the language of politics um, and of business yeah. sometimes, um, you can, you know, it does require people who can move across those different boundaries and who understand those different mm. worlds to, to be kind of facilitators. So mm. there's, there's challenges of language. There's challenges, of course, of ego 
um, and of institutional ego as well as personal ego that people want recognition and they want the kind of the glory. Um, and so we're quite pragmatic about that often at the Good Faith Partnership. We don't, you know, we don't require people to somehow um, become perfect individuals without any ego in order to collaborate. We, it, it, often mm. the challenge is how can we create a structure or an initiative in which some of that, you know, glory of success is shared um, and in mm. which people get the right and in which people can, can become more comfortable getting recognition as enablers and as collaborators mm. rather than as kind of sole, sole owners um, of things. Mm. Um, and I think, you know, you, people, you, people often say, you know, you get what you celebrate and we need to get better at celebrating um, partnerships and celebrating collaboration rather than just focusing in on individuals or individual organizations and successes. That's brilliant. Thank you. David, it's fascinating to hear about your ancestry and how uh, they would represent such an array of different spheres. And that sounds like it's reflected a lot in your life as well and all the different things you get up to and all the things that you have your, uh, yeah, all the things that you get involved in as well. But um, within that is the uh, the Buxton Leadership Program. I was wondering, could you tell us a little bit about that? How did that come about and what's the focus uh, for the Buxton Leadership yeah, Programme? Yeah, I mean, I guess so. The, the, the Buxton Leadership Programme, in some senses, came out of my own personal experience. Um, and in some senses, came out of the story of, of, of Thomas Fowle Buxton and of my ancestors, which I've just mentioned. And, um, you know, I, I, when I was about to leave uh, university and, and, and then leave the, my role in the student union, a, a number of people who, you know, who went before me in the student union ended up going straight into politics, straight into Westminster. That was the kind of well-trodden path. And I saw a number of friends and, yeah. and colleagues at university kind of following that trajectory. And I looked at it and I thought about it quite seriously. And, and the reason I didn't decide to do that was because I, I thought if I go on that route and you know work for an MP and then try and work for a think tank and then try and become a special advisor or something and then try and you know, find my safe seat, um, then actually I felt I would come out of that pipeline um, as someone who had only ever really had to relate to people who were quite similar to me. And yeah. I, I struggled to see how I could be a transformative change. Um, mm -hmm. And mm -hmm. I just thought it's not enough to have good intentions um, if, you don't, if you're not actually friends with people from very different life experiences, you're unlikely to be able to, um, to really advocate for them or to... Um, to understand uh, their world, their needs in a position of power. I was really compelled by um, community organizing, which I started, um, I did an internship when I was a student, and then that's what I went on to do after the student union, because community organizing forces you to have those relationships with people from very different backgrounds. Um, that's a key part of the role of an organizer, is to have one-to-one -one meetings where you understand what makes this person tick, um, and that could be someone who um, has taken out a payday loan um, or, you know, single parent um, or, you know, a, a recent migrant to the UK, a whole range of different people that I got to know um, through that kind of process. And that I felt was a really important formational experience for me. And so the Buxton Leadership Programme was about trying to create a pathway for Christians who are coming out of university and feeling a sense of calling into politics and public life but that didn't necessarily just want to jump straight into Westminster. So the idea of the program is that it's okay. two um, placements that run alongside each other, one in parliament or, or with an organization that works in parliament, 
and then one with a local church in East London doing community organizing. Um, and so that, that idea mm-hmm. of trying to shape a more rounded kind of generation of leaders um, who can bring some of these different types of relationships and different influences to bear on public life. Um, of course, inspired by, by people like Thomas Rob Buxton, who did that. And, and how did your experience of community organising and, and maybe the experience of the interns you have on the programme in, in getting involved in community organising, how has that changed you? I think it has um, made me value relationships more. Um, it's made me recognise okay. that um, if relationships aren't at the heart of social change, then really it's the whole thing is pretty pointless um that we need what we need to make real change is not just better policies but it's it's a different um different understanding of of kind of of different a change in power um relations um that is to say it's not enough to just be for um kind of middle class people to be a voice for the voiceless as, as you often hear people talk about but we need people in this country who are currently powerless or have little power to actually have more power and to have an experience of public life, which is empowering mm-hmm. um, and not simply people doing things for them. Um, so, and that's, that's right at the heart of community organizing. And I think that's something that has kind of stayed with me in terms of how I think about how change happens and my own role within that um, as well. Now, um, you were part of the millennial leadership research that uh, Forge did earlier in the year and, and published, and um, and you read it, I know, as well. And uh, tell us about some of the areas around culture that really challenged you in, in, in reading that and, and resonated. Yeah, with well, you. I think one of the things that stood out and that definitely resonated with my own experience is this idea that people are really searching for purpose. Um, in their work mm-hmm. um, that the kind of mm-hmm. age when you know people would be coming out of university looking for a, a safe job or a steady kind of career um, and that that was the kind of primary motivation um, you know that seems to have changed people seem to want more from their job than just a solid um, kind of nine to five with a decent salary and I think that's really exciting because um like I said, if, if, if we're going to see change on some of the big challenging issues, um, we, need, we need contribution from every possible sector. And I think business in particular is key to that. Um, we need businesses that have more of a sense of social purpose rather than just existing to make profit for shareholders. And I think that's a key challenge for the millennial generation is it's one thing to go into working for a church or a charity um, and, and therefore feeling a sense of purpose. That's great. And lots of people, you know, we need, we need that. But we also desperately need people to go into business and, and have a clear sense of purpose and to help shape the, those organizations' sense of purpose. Um, and I've been struck by the number of my friends from university who found themselves in consultancies and public affairs agencies and um, other, kinds of, uh, other kinds of businesses, banks and other things, and they long for that sense of purpose, but the current structure of the organization doesn't really give it to them. Um, and, and I think we therefore need to be creative in thinking about how can we um, set up the structures or support those leaders who can bring more of a sense of purpose to the world of business. 
That's really interesting. We just uh, did a podcast with somebody else from the the business sector, and they were talking about how uh, whilst previously business may have had a mindset where it was all about financial goal and growth in that aspect, but actually there's something now that almost feels equally important to that in terms of purpose and those different things. Um, so why is it that for you social purpose is important for business? Uh, and what practically does that look like for you? Well, I think it's important um, partly because of the kind of resources that businesses have to bring um, have uh, to bring to tackling different issues you know inherent in the kind of business concept is the, is the idea of growth and so if we can find businesses that have clear social purpose that are able to scale um, that gives the possibility for change that charities or even politics you know doesn't often have we live in a time where there's just not a lot of money around in politics and in the public sector and so if we're going to tackle issues like homelessness or drug addiction or, or, you know, whatever it might be, businesses provide a kind of potential scalable solutions to those, to those issues. But I also think, you know, we used, to, we used to think that businesses and the economy was a kind of morally neutral space, I think, um, that, um, you know, if the economy just created growth and then it was up to the, um, the politicians and others to decide how to use the proceeds of that to make a better society. But I think increasingly we're recognizing that that's a, um, that's a very naive way of thinking about, about things. And actually businesses, the economy shapes how we see the world, it shapes how we interact with each other um, and how we think about ourselves. And so if we, if we don't have people who are intentionally thinking about the social purpose of businesses, then we will end up with businesses that harm us in lots of different ways, whether through um, advertising or through the kind of lifestyles that they um, that they might perpetuate, um, or just by um, um, kind of atomizing us and 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 um, forcing us to ever more into a kind of individualized world where it's all about what we want and our own particular preferences, rather than how we how we kind of relate mm-hmm. to others. Mm-hmm. Now. Um- you know, the, this idea of social purpose in business has, has been one that's been around for a long time, but it does seem to be, um, you know, gathering speed as well. So I have, you know, I'm in my 50s, I have uh, friends who run businesses where they take 10% of their profit and, 10, sorry, 10% of their revenue and uh, uh, give that away as philanthropists in, 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 yeah. into charities. Um, how, how is this different and what kind of examples have you seen of really socially purposed businesses making making yeah. a difference give us some examples of, of, of some of the things you've seen in good faith partnership and, and elsewhere that that might might spark yeah. people to want to well, go and do it the, one yeah? of them, um i'll give a couple one would be in the space of, of social lending um so this is a, a an area that i've worked on quite a lot is around how can you find business models that might compete with the likes of Wonga and Bright House who are ripping off um, mm-hmm. poor and vulnerable people um, and offer something that is, that is better? Um, so whether that's a credit union or mm-hmm. um, you know, another kind of responsible lender. And what's interesting there is actually the ones that are run by people who um, have a kind of traditional charity mindset, we're here to help poor people, are often less effective than the ones that are run by people with a more business mindset. We're here to grow and make ourselves sustainable because the ones that are run mm-hmm. on that mindset are thinking about what do people really need um, and how can we grow it? How can we have more impact? Um, and that is, I think, so I think that's been really striking for me 
that that's that kind of business mindset of sustainability of growth if if put to the right purpose can be a real force for good mm-hmm. the, the other example i'd, I'd uh, look to is something that a former colleague of mine is um is running which is called clean for good and it's an ethical cleaning company um so, Clean, clean, as in C L E A N, clean, and it okay. um, uh, pays all of its uh, cleaners the living wage. It has them all on proper contracts with proper holiday pay and sick pay. Um, they don't have to pay for their own uniforms. Um, and and apart from anything else, it's it's campaigning for a, a, an increase in the dignity of cleaning as a profession. Um, you know, this is a, a, an mm-hmm. industry that is vital um to our society and yet is often looked down on as a kind of lowest um possible uh, kind of profession or one of the lowest and so clean for good is about changing the way that we think about and perceive um cleaners and people involved in the cleaning industry and it is what's fascinating about it is that um it's one of the more expensive cleaning companies in london and yet it is growing and it's growing quite fast because there are so many organizations out there who are fed up of using contracted cleaners that they know are paid poverty wages and that they know are treated, you know, terribly. Um, and they're willing to pay a bit more in order to know that the, the people who are cleaning their offices are treated like actual human beings and are paid properly and um, have a decent chance of career progression and all, all of the rest of it. Um, and I, I think that's a really exciting um, business. Um, it's a really exciting model and one that I would um, encourage people to look into, but also one that I think, you know, if, if that can be proven to be successful, has all kinds of interesting ramifications for other, other similar models in different fields. Yeah, that's fantastic and, and great examples. Hey, time's getting on. We'd love to speak to you for longer, but we always have a couple of questions that we try and ask everybody who comes onto the podcast. Uh, it would be great to get your thoughts, as always. Um, so the first question we have is, what's the biggest tension that you face within your leadership? Um, if I'm allowed two quick ones, one is, how do you balance that sense of purpose oh, with um, a, work li- a work-life balance, or particularly a work-family balance? I've got two small children, um, mm-hmm. and I am uh-huh. desperate to be a good dad as well as um, and a good husband, as well as someone who is effective in the world. Um, and um, mm. so I think that's a, that's a tension that I live with. Um, and then another one is, you know, mm. the leadership versus kind of collaboration and wanting to empower others. How do I give direction to mm. people that might work for me um, and lead them well, um, whilst also at the same time not kind of loading it over them, giving them uh, and wanting to kind of, honor them and serve them um, as well. So that's another tension. The second question we have that we ask everybody is this, uh, within your leadership, what's your greatest excitement and greatest fear at the moment? Interesting. Um, my greatest excitement is um, the way in which different sectors can collaborate at a city level. Um, so there's just so many exciting things happening in Bristol, which are bringing together universities, business, you know the the, the council ch- charities and grassroots organizations and i just think the, the the possibility for change in bristol but also for change that could be replicated elsewhere is so exciting it's, a, it's an area in which mm. politics is a hopeful place and that is quite rare these days um and uh, mm. 
yeah. but my, I guess my <laughs> biggest fear is that you know those kind of things are still um, those kind of projects are still quite nascent and small scale, um, and um, mm. there's a kind of sense of urgency that the challenges that we're facing require solutions now, um, and yet there's a sense that the kind of all of this whole world of collaboration and cross sector working is fragile um, and um, and often quite mm. new and untested. And what you know, the kind of the ruts that we get into as individuals and organizations, the tram lines are deep and getting people out of them is hard. Um, so that is that's my fear, is that this stuff is nice to talk about and very hard to do in practice. Well, we applaud you, David, in in all the work that you're doing uh within Bristol and with the good faith partnership with with uh, Russell as well in trying to break down some of those barriers and and turn some of that fragility into long-term sustainability as well and um, if people want to find out more about good faith partnership where, where should they go to to look have a look at our website which is goodfaith.org.uk fantastic so goodfaith.org.uk david thank you so much uh inspiring to hear your examples but also uh the way that you've sought to bring um cultural change and transformation in bristol and and through the good faith partnership as well thanks for joining us on the podcast today not at all thank you thanks for listening for more dedicated resources to equip emerging leaders visit our new website millennial-leader.com And don't forget to catch up on the Forge Leadership Podcast at forge-leadership-podcast.com.